Well, there's us, and then there's Jesus. There's a reason, in fact, a million reasons why we follow him, a few. He is unwavering in his conviction, in his commitment, and his promise. We are unstable at best. He remains calm and in control even in chaos and crisis. We often completely crumble. He relentlessly pursues others' salvation. We relentlessly pursue self-preservation. He remains, endures, speaks truth, is faithful. We flee, scatter, betray, deny. He is the Messiah. Can we even be called disciples? Where we left off in the story, it's already gotten dark. It's night, the night after the Passover, the night before his crucifixion. But the story is about to get even darker, as we see. Everything in this story through Mark has been leading to these moments. Jesus said it was coming exactly like this, with specific detail. Mark 8, 31, he began to teach his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Well, not much has changed. Peter is still denying him, rejecting him, not believing what must happen. Then again, in Mark 9, 31, Jesus said to his disciples, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand and were afraid to ask him about it. The disciples still didn't understand and were afraid. Not much has changed. And then again, Mark 10, 33, we are going up to Jerusalem, Jesus said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests, the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. But then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. It happens exactly as Jesus said, and yet the disciples are still thinking of themselves. Let's focus in on Peter for a few moments. Mark does. It's a remarkably tragic and sad story, but it's also one of redemption and grace. Peter is meant to stand in for all of the disciples and therefore for all of us as we are drawn into the story. Many can easily relate with Peter. Uh, he is often one of the, the more prominent voices, the one speaking up immediately, maybe putting his foot in his mouth. Uh, he's so wavering in his commitment and his understanding, and yet he is loved deeply by Jesus. And so many have resonated with Peter, and maybe we can again, even when it's hard and it brings conviction. Peter repeatedly falls short of the call to follow Jesus, to be with him always. And we see that here in this passage. But Jesus never gives up on him. So will that be our story? At times, Peter is emphatic. At times, he's erratic. At times, he's egotistic. Peter is emblematic. Peter goes from high to low twice in this story. He's like a yo-yo, and we all have our highs and lows, and it comes to, it comes to our faith, uh, but Peter is pretty eccentric, faithful and fearless. 
to doubting and dejected. Verse 29, as we heard a few weeks ago, uh, this is coming after that Passover when Jesus says, all will scatter, all will leave me. And, and then he specifically will say to Peter, even you will deny me three times this very night. Peter says to him, even though all else will desert you, I will not. And Jesus again reinforms him, even tonight, Peter, three times you will deny me. But he said vehemently, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Obviously, not just our words, but our actions matter deeply. We already looked at Peter's first denial narrative where these words were fulfilled. Three times you will deny me. It's the lesser known one. We know of this one that we heard read today primarily, his actual denying words. I never know him. I don't know what you're talking about. I do not understand. I'm not one of them. But before that in the garden, Peter is there with James and John. And Jesus at this critical hour called him and, and, and all the disciples really, but these three specifically, to stay alert to stay awake, to watch and pray. And what happened? I fell asleep once, twice, three times. That's really the first and maybe as significant of a denial to the followership of Jesus. Apparently, Jesus' urging didn't seem urgent enough. Apparently, there was no threat. Everything was okay. It's okay to rest. We're tired. It seems that that has been the perspective or the countenance of the American evangelical church for a long time now. It's not urgent. There's no threat. It's okay. We can rest. The threat comes. Judas enters. Jesus knew it was coming. Apparently, the disciples were still blinded to this reality. Betrayal from within. One who was amongst us, who we thought we knew, but apparently was a wolf in sheep's clothing, someone who professed faith, we trusted. He betrays. Now we're ready to fight. Now at this moment, now according to John's account of this night, it is Peter who draws the sword and cuts off the ear. Mark leaves out, out that detail. It's commonly believed that much of Mark's record came from Peter himself. If that's true, it's very interesting which details get in and which ones are left out and wondering how that conversation may have gone. It's fairly speculative, but it is interesting, and I wonder about it. In this moment, Peter is putting action to his words. Peter the fisherman, not the soldier, all the more courageous and impressive, with maybe even just a fisherman's knife. Was he going for the easiest target? He was going after a servant, not a soldier. Some speculated he was going after Judas, who was behind, and the servant named Malchus elsewhere got in the way. Or perhaps Peter was going in for the kill, and all he got was a bit of ear, which also seems to line up with this narrative. Either way, in John's account, Jesus commands Peter, put away the sword. In Luke's account, Jesus says, no more of this. and actually heals the ear of Malchus. In Matthew's account, he rebukes Peter with these words, Matthew 26, 53. 
Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will not at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Essentially saying, not this way. Jesus is still in control. He's yielding. But if you're Peter, are you not hearing that as a rebuke from Jesus? I don't need you. In fact, I don't want you to fight this way. I don't need you to defend. Those who fight by the sword will die by the sword. And perhaps that insight sheds light on the scene in the courts. It gives me deeper compassion for Peter. Remember, Jesus had deep compassion for Peter. It never wavered. He called him to high, high standards in following him. But at this moment, Peter is putting into action his words, even if I must die with you, for you, I will not deny you. So the betrayer comes, they're gonna arrest, arrest his Lord. He's gonna fight. No, not, he's not a soldier up against a, up against a battalion or a, a group of soldiers. He's putting his life on the line and Jesus rebukes him. No, not this way. So that when he is standing in the temple courts, are you not one of them? And he says, I do not know or understand what you are saying. There's some truth in that statement. One, that's kind of been his story throughout. I do not know or understand. But imagine what he's feeling in this moment. Yes, you are one of, you are one of them. You're one of the disciples. You know him. I do not know that man. I am not one of them. There's some truth in that statement. I am no longer a disciple. I don't know anything or understand anything anymore. I don't know what you're talking about. The juxtaposition is palpable, and this has been a, a storyline that Mark has been weaving throughout. The disciples, those closest to Jesus, are the ones that understand the least, struggle so much, fail in their perception, fail to walk into the kingdom, to perceive it, to live faithfully, while so many of the least likely ones, the most unexpected ones, are the, are the faithful ones. They're the ones that seem to, to get it and be affirmed that Jesus is astonished by. And here the juxtaposition is really complete, this storyline. While all the other disciples have fled, Peter is, is there, but he's unsettled, he's unstable, he's wrestling. Will we remain faithful and close or will we, with our doubts and uncertainty, drift and scatter, betray, deny? This represents the spiritual journey, I think, of all who are striving to follow Jesus. When persecution comes, when, when, that, when those moments come where this might cost me more than I expected to continue faithfully with Jesus. Will we remember Jesus' words in Mark 8, 34? He called the crowd and his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. Or will we join the disciples in the garden? Verse 50 of this chapter. All of them deserted him and fled. And verse 51. A certain young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. What a strange detail to add. 
First, a fulfillment of a messianic prophecy, Amos 2, 16. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. The gospel writers were very in tune with the Hebrew scriptures, so they would often just weave in these messianic fulfillments, all pointing to Jesus, to this day, to that time, to that moment. And I preached an entire two messages on biblical prophecy. You can go back and look if you would like. But I think that's part of what's happening. I think there's also part, partly an inside joke here, if you could call it that. The disciples knew who this was. Mark knew who this was when he was, well, almost undoubtedly. By not naming the disciple, because they all knew, he stands for all of them. And I think they, they wanted it that way. We all fled. The, again, the juxtaposition is complete. At the beginning of the story, they left everything to follow Jesus. Now at this moment, they're leaving everything to flee him. They're exposed for who they truly are. Naked they came, naked they go. And I think that's all of their story. And so him being unnamed means all of us join with them. And so I have, I have these moments where I have left everything and declared my followership and I have these other moments where I've really left everything to become that prodigal, to flee, to go. This is the lowest of the low moment for the disciples, for Peter. Even the way that Mark is telling this story is, is unique to the rest of the story. He's flipping back and forth from the courtyard, the outer courtyard in Peter, to the inner courtyard in Jesus. Jesus is inside. Peter is outside. Peter is with the guards, with the accusers, with the ones that are abusing Jesus. That's who he's choosing to be with when, Peter, when Jesus is inside. The inner and the outer court couldn't be clearer. And the most poignant line of all, verse 54, Peter followed him at a distance. When he had been so close, when he had vowed his closeness to Jesus, now he is following at a distance. Apparently, he has not fled with the rest, fled naked, but he is still following at a distance. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, as we sang already this morning. Prone to leave the God I love. We've done the same for any number of reasons. Perhaps that's the way of our discipleship now, today, in this time. We're following at a distance in heart, Emotion, conviction, in mind, in spirit, in action. Have we left Jesus at this critical hour to join the accusers, to join the doubters, the critics, the disenfranchised, the disinterested? And yet you are here now. And yet presence here doesn't guarantee that you're not following at a distance as we all can. Jesus seems to be left alone before the high priest. He's been betrayed not just by Judas, but by all of his disciples. He's been denied by them. But he is not alone. The Spirit is upon him. The prophetic words that he proclaimed in Mark 13, verse 11, are being fulfilled in him. Whenever you are arrested, he said to his disciples, You're, whenever you are brought to trial... Do not worry beforehand what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at that time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. He's very 
quiet in these moments, like a lamb before its shearers is silent. He will speak. The Spirit will prompt him to speak, and it is a powerful declaration. First, ironically, one of the accusations is so close to the truth. As they're trying to pin falsehood upon him, I think it's ironic that they are, they are declaring some, some truths here. Verse 57, some stood up and gave false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. It actually was a true statement, false in their understanding or application. They could not agree. This is fulfilling another storyline of Mark, that Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the replacement temple, the dwelling place of God. This story will be complete, that upon his crucifixion, the curtain in the temple, the veil between the holy place and the holiest of holies, where God's presence was said to dwell upon the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, that veil would be torn in two from top to bottom. The only way that massive veil, curtain, could be torn from top to bottom, like two hands reaching from heaven and ripping it apart. Where not only do all now have access in, but God's presence is fully released. Jesus is the full temple. He's already shut down the religious actions in the temple, cut it off from the source of life, using the cursed fig tree as an example of lifelessness, fruitlessness. This phrase, made with hands, not made with hands, is interesting. It shows up many times in the Hebrew scriptures, always referring to idols, crafted idols, made with hands, not the one true God that could never be represented by any earthly man-made thing. And so to use that phraseology is very intentionally to point that the temple itself had become an idol, had become something simply made by hands. Remember, what started as a, a tent in the wilderness, a humble tent. Now, it was beautifully ornate and crafted and artistic, but it was still a tent, had now in Herod's day become one of the ancient wonders of the world. And God said, I will not dwell there. That does not reflect me. It it may reflect me with the right heart, but the heart is devoid. It's about what we have done. Look what man has accomplished. And it really was more unto King Herod's glory than it was anything to do with the glory of God. And the Jews at that time had built a religious system that was actually oppressing people, and they'd missed the true heart. No, Jesus will fulfill it the true dwelling place, the true temple, not made with hands, but living, redeeming, and healing. It's all been leading to this moment. Will they find, the chief priests, the religious leaders, will they find justification to put Jesus to death? Will Jesus reveal his true identity? Will he recant at this moment? The high priest and all the council are looking for these reasons to accuse him, to condemn him. They can find none. They can't agree. He has simply offended them, right? He wouldn't play their religious games. He condemned them as hypocrites. He renounced the temple. He initiated the upside-down kingdom. He was threatening their control and their power. He was drawing away the crowds. He was taking attention from them to him. The crowds were flocking to him He was besting them at all of their theological and logical debates. Their wisest, smartest could not stand up against him. They were infuriated with him and tired of him. They were trying to label him as an insurrectionist, 
so that the Romans would see an uprising coming, yet Jesus was a pacifist. They can't pin anything on him. This encounter recorded in John 10, I think is aptly foreshadowing to what's happening here. John 10, 31, at a very specific moment in time in his teaching, the Jews picked up stones to stone him in that very moment, and Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles. For which of these are you stoning me? Pretty calm and collected in a moment like that. They say in their anger, we are not stoning you for these, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, have claimed to be God. Here we are, Mark 14, 61. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? They would use lots of names for Yahweh to not say the name Yahweh. The power of that name was revered. So the blessed one, in this case, by the high priest. And Jesus says, now he speaks, Jesus says, I am, ego a me. This is the powerful declaration of I am who I am. From the Exodus account, when Moses met God at the burning bush, and he said, who will I say sent me? Who are you, God, Lord? I am was his response, Yahweh. I am who I am. The Greek equivalent is ego, a me, I am. John uses it repeatedly throughout his gospel telling. Here Mark brings it in, in power. This is the time where he speaks. Jesus is still controlling the narrative. They've got him bound and are coming to bring accusations against him, and they can't. They can't do anything. And Jesus now declares, I am, and gives them all the fuel they need. This is blasphemy to their ears. This breaks the third commandment, taking Yahweh's name in vain, attributing it in a way that would betray and blaspheme his name, claiming as a mere man to be God, I am. They did not mistake this statement. It's why at that moment, the high priest did the most dramatic thing he could. He tore his robes. Now, that's just, it's an unusual anti-cultural thing for us, except for maybe an extreme anguish where we know not what we are doing. This was, this was a declaration that all has been torn, all has been ripped by this statement. The, the, the vests of the high priest were set apart as consecrated, as holy. Not only were they extremely valuable for how much it took to weave them and to put them together, they were a sign of, of his holiness, of his set-apartness. So to render those what was a statement of the utmost distress and blasphemy and to declare we need to hear nothing else, he himself has said it, has given us all the fuel we need. We can now take him before the Romans, before Pilate, and say he is claim he's, he's either a madman or he is proving that he is worthy to be removed. They can take him before the Jews. No Jew would then now believe him. Most Jews did not believe the coming Messiah would be God himself, but the one sent by God to rescue and deliver in the line of David, a new and better king than David. But it was not commonly believed God himself would come. God himself would come and rescue, but through, through a man. 
through his spirit in a man, upon a man, as he always had, had done in the past, through prophets, priests, and kings. So to, for Jesus to claim this is giving them all that they need to remove him, to put him to death, to be justified, to feel justified according to their own scriptures and their own faith. That's all that we need. The truth has been proclaimed and it is offensive to their ears. They reject it. And now we have the juxtaposition at the darkest hour of Jesus. The disciples have betrayed him, fallen asleep on him, fled from him. In Peter's case, withdrawn from him, following at a distance and outright denying him. Where does that leave us? Hopefully convicted. This is our story. Where have we done the same? Will we confess, repent, return? If we've been following Jesus at a distance for a season, will we have a season? Will we come into a season of closeness? We are being called again, invited again. Jesus is not giving up on his disciples, not giving up on Peter, because we are reminded that this is our story in conviction and perhaps brokenness. Peter breaks down and weeps when he's struck to the heart of what he has done, when he sees it, will we see ourselves the same? But reminded of the grace and the hope that remains, this is not the end of the story. It's not the end of Peter's, it's not the end of the disciples. After the resurrection, Jesus will pursue them, forgive them, teach them, redeem them, call them, commission them, and send them. He does not go looking for a new 12. He's a God of redemption and a God of grace. Peter 2. Now in John's account, in John 21, that's how his gospel ends with Jesus restoring Peter three times, a powerful message. Mark is more subtle, but it's there in Mark 16, 6. At the tomb, Jesus has been raised. Jesus has left. The tomb is empty. The women come to, to anoint him to bring spices. He's gone. Apparently an angel is there. This, Mark says, a man dressed in gleaming white is there. And this man or angel of the Lord says, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. And he is risen. He is not here. See the place where he laid. So go and tell the disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he said. His disciples, go tell his disciples and Peter. Is that a special call out? Hey, we need Peter. Or is that a, Peter's no longer a disciple. Likely, likely to Peter's self-declaration. I am no longer one, as he said in the courts. He's broken to the heart, but I'm not, I'm not worthy. You can just see him. I'm not worthy. I'm not one of his Go tell the disciples, all of them, and Peter. Jesus loves him deeply. He's going to restore him. Peter becomes the head of the church in the next wave as the church is birthed and born. Jesus calls them back. The whole story of Mark has been leading to this storyline where they are blind, fail to understand and perceive and receive and to walk faithfully they will come to see. And Mark announced it succinctly, there you will see. The time is coming where you will see just as he told you. Let this be our story. 
the ways we've joined the disciples and fled, betrayed, denied, followed at a distance, even if that's today, where there's conviction, we can come in repentance and turn and return because the grace of God is extended. It's not the end of the story. It need not be. As we are invited, as we are called, as we are given opportunities, there we will see. God help us see. As we are amazed by his grace, let this be our redemption story. Perhaps it is renewed today as we need. He's calling to f- us to follow again, to follow closely, not at a distance. May we draw near to him and he will draw near to us. May you know this today and not just know this as a reminder, but know this at a heart level. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. May that be our prayer and our song as we sing with other words in a response. Again, as we responded last week, let's let that heart cry, that repetitive heart cry that God might be prompting you in his spirit to proclaim. God, help us see. God, draw near as we draw near. Even show us how as we fail to know how. Let it be a heart cry. As we partake in communion, and you are welcome, the table is open. That, let that be such an intimate, his body and blood in us, his life for us. May that be renewed today. We're both convicted and encouraged by Peter standing for us, seeing his yo-yo discipleship. And perhaps, perhaps that will be our story this coming week. We probably have a track record that it is. But today, in this moment, we do not worry about tomorrow. We worry about today that we have been given. Today, let our discipleship, our followership be close. May it be close. May we be with him as he desires to be with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your pursuit of us. That picture of you, the prodigal God, seeing and pursuing your beloved children. Sometimes in your wisdom and probably in your brokenness, you let us go. You let us remain, flee, wander, leave everything to get away. You hear our voice amongst the mockers the deniers. You see our heart, you see our action. Yet you draw us. You beckon us, come. We sense that today. Bring it even more. Draw us back, Lord. We see you, Father, with open arms, not just open arms waiting, but running toward us as we draw near. On this Father's Day, we reflect on you as good, good Father. And Jesus, we have followed at a distance in so many ways, in ways we're not even aware. We repent, we turn, we confess that. Bring to mind specifics, may we confess them. 
May we receive again your grace and mercy anew. May we receive your life and life alone, your salvation, your freedom, your peace alone. Remind us, God, and may we walk close. We long for a season of closeness in our followership. May we not drift or follow at a distance, but, oh, Lord, we need your help by the power of the Spirit, by the trust in your word and your promises, with the hope we have in King Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.